Good morning. Well, I'm getting situated here. I invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. A couple of housekeeping notes. Uh, the family requests no visitors to see June Russell due to her current condition. Pray from a distance and pray for Miss Yuna Kuhn as well because of the fact that uh, she is, is going through a very difficult time. And I'm sure it'd be an absence of the mind and not of the heart that we forgot other prayer needs. We keep a prayer list and our, uh, our classes in church pray together. But I just, just want to kind of mention a couple of things there that are, that are current on my mind. I also wanted to uh, welcome baby's first Sunday, Addison Ray. Good one. She is right there, right? Right over there. Right there. Right over there. I know if people are listening by audio and they don't clip this part out of it, they won't see the beautiful cuteness that you're holding in your arms, Colleen. But she's a doll. And you guys pray for Colleen. She's had some medical issues after having given birth to this beautiful baby, and she needs your continued prayers. So I'd like for you to all pray for Colleen by name this week, and I know that she would uh, be edified by that and need that. Uh, quick shameless plug for the scripture journals. We have these little journals if you want to be able to take uh, notes in a journal separate from your personal print Bible that you can kind of keep just for 2 Corinthians. These are still available at the Welcome Center for $5, or if you don't have $5 and you want one, take one. Um, we want you to have these. We want to make use of these. And so that's what these are for. And there's some places in there and some people that I'm going to make mention of during the first part of this sermon. And it's helpful to be able to circle those or highlight those or make notes. So even if you, if you have a, a Bible and not a journal, which is optimal, I suppose, we should all want to have a Bible, uh, you, you want to find some place to take notes. I personally circle the places and make little notes in my Bible. I, I mark it up. But, you know, some folks don't prefer to do that for one reason or another. And I understand those convictions, uh, but do take notes on uh, people and places because the people and places are always important in understanding the context of God's holy word, but I don't know that they've ever been more important than they are in Second Corinthians because the people and places, they become a real uh, important aspect of understanding what I think God is communicating to us by his word in Second uh, Corinthians because of the personal nature of the letter. So, Let's read the text together and then make sense out of it. By the way, my, my oldest daughter turned 13 today. Just thought you all should know. Uh, yeah. Yeah, happy birthday to her. Absolutely. And happy uh, trauma help for me uh, along the way there. If you guys wouldn't mind praying for me. I'm, yeah, if I seem a little discombobulated this morning, it's because I am. My oldest daughter turned 13 this morning. So uh, there's that. But we love her. We're thankful for her. And... Uh, just really thankful for your ministry to her. Uh, she knows the gospel in no small part than because of you, and we're grateful for uh, that. Let's look at God's holy word together now in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, for context, I suppose, we'll pick up at verse number 11, but really wanting to hear verses 12 through the end of the chapter and then the first four chapters, first four verses of chapter 2. So listen, you must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. And now this, this week proper, verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand just as you did partially understand us, 
that on the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Verse 15. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Read that with me, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And because it's part of the title, let's do it again. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Where do the, the promises of God find their yes? In Him. Where do the promises of God find their yes? In Him. Who is Him? Jesus Christ. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. It says in verse 20, continuing, That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. And has it is God, it's implied, and it is God, and has anointed us. It's God who establishes us with you in Christ. It is God who has anointed us. It is God who has also put his seal on us. It is God who's given us in our hearts as a guarantee, the Spirit. These participles are important. They're powerful, aren't they? It's God. This is a message about God to God's people for the glory of God. Verse 23. But I call God to witness against me, the Apostle Paul writes in the first person autobiographically. I call him to witness against me, based on the intentions of his heart, by the way. I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not what the other folks are saying about me. The reason I didn't come was to spare you, he says. Verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you. We work with you. For your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad? I'm like we're stuck together, right? That's kind of what he's saying. But the one whom I have pained, verse 3. And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. Verse 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Many tears. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. In order to apply this sermon today, we're going to need to bring, bridge the gap between the Corinthian Christians and we Indianian-type Christians. We're going to need to bridge the gap between the apostles of the early church and the leaders today. But if you can think of members in today's church and leaders in today's church, you can better grasp good application and you can bridge the proverbial gap between the text world and the world that we live in 
uh, today. And so I hope that you will be able to do that. Leadership, I've learned, is about more than having the right message. It's about having the right manner. And today, Paul gives us a leadership treatise on how to match a godly manner with a godly message. Paul's autobiographical outline, autobiographical work here outlines three necessities of leadership, and God has given us this in holy writ for posterity's sakes, for our good, and for his glory. So Paul's autobiographical outline outlines three necessities of leadership that are outlined in this text, and we're going to talk about them as we go. We find them in verses 12 to 14, and then in verses 15 to 22, and then in verse 23 through the fourth verse of the second chapter. That all of these leadership applications are couched in an exposition of God's Word that is about God Himself. We don't go to leader before we go to God. And so the way that I want to expositionally outline this text for you this morning is as we look at verses 12 to 14, I want you to know that it's because of God's glorious guarantee that we have the same boast. In verses 15 to 22, I want you to know it's because of God's glorious guarantee that we have the same grace. And in verses 23 through verse 4 of chapter 2, I want you to know it's because of God's glorious guarantee that we have the same joy. And so if you want to try to sum up those three sections of Scripture with three simple words, write the word boast by verse 12, write the word grace by verse 15, and write the word joy by verse 23. I'm going to say that one more time because it is a map for this message. Write the word boast by verse 12. It forms an inclusion. Boast is mentioned in in verse 12, verse 14. We have the same boast. Write the word grace by verse 15. This is a passage about God's grace. And write the word joy by verse 23. You're going to see the joy that Paul is hopeful for, a joy that is not trite but is based on the depth of the serious teaching of God's Word. Now, we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at it very, very carefully, but I need to do one more small piece of housekeeping. The people and the places in this text are central to understanding that outline. I want you to understand that these people in Corinth adopted Roman laws, but historically they were Greek. Julius Caesar reconstituted the colony shortly before he died. The colony itself, the city of Corinth, was decimated over 100 years prior, and it became Romanized. But a lot of the inscriptions were actually Greek. However, the official language was Roman in that the official language was Latin, and we can tell that in a lot of the inscriptions that are still in existence today. Eight of the 17 names in the New Testament of persons connected to Corinth are in Latin. None of them save one are in Corinthians, so I'm not going to mention them to you, but there are 17 names in the New Testament that are connected to the town of Corinth, so there's a lot to read about in Romans and in Acts, in addition to Corinthians, about the church at Corinth. But those were, eight of the 17 were Latin names, the others Greek. The city also took on quite a different appearance during its Greek period. Now, not just people, but a little background in places. It's so very important that we get this from the onset of a new expositional series. The text will lend itself to to this background in places again in two weeks. And so I'm going to take some time in two weeks on September 1 to offer maps of the known world today and the Mediterranean region during Paul's missionary journeys and his plans and what actually happened during his travels. But for the, for the sake of today, I simply want to share with you a quick look at an ESV map and another map that I think we can pull on the screen. Can you do those there? Is that something that you can throw up there for us, Nathaniel, for the maps 
on the screen. Uh, this first one here is Paul's third missionary journey, and we just simply want you to see that when he got to the region of Asia where Ephesus is, that he wound up going, at some point he went over to Corinth and back, we think, and then completed his missionary journey again and all the way back to Judea when they finally sent him. We know Paul winds up making two trips to Corinth after he plans the church, and this we think this letter was written because of a failed second trip to see them because he had sent Timothy with 1 Corinthians, and it had not gone well. He visited in duress, and then we think that he visited again, but downstream from Titus's delivery of this letter of 2 Corinthians and a good report about the actual repentance of the Corinthian people. So this geography is important because Corinth is over here in Greece. Ephesus is over here, and there's a lot about Ephesians in there. We're going to see in our map the region of Asia, the region of Achaia, as well as talk of Macedonia and Troas. And so this is the Aegean Sea. Lots of commerce happening here, and Corinth was a, uh, it was a commercial capital, even if it wasn't a cultural capital like Athens, Greece was. So this gives you some geography around the Mediterranean Sea. Remember, Israel, or Judea, is down over here on the south and eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. Go on to the next map, please. It helps us zero in just a little bit. This is what I'm talking about with Corinth, Macedonia, Troas, Asia, Ephesus in particular, the Aegean Sea. Now, you say, why are you doing this Sunday school lesson, Matt? Look at your Bible briefly and look, look in your Bible in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. You see the word Corinth? Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Do you see the region Achaia mentioned? A-C-H-A-I-A. So let your eyes scroll down to verse 8. Do you see the region of Asia mentioned? You might circle that. Ephesus is in Asia. Let your eyes scroll down to verse 16. Do you see the town of Macedonia mentioned? Or the region, rather, of Macedonia? That's up north. Macedonia is to Achaia, is to Asia. They're regions. Look at verse 16. Do you see Judea mentioned? Judea is east of the Mediterranean Sea. Israel, it's where Jesus walked, Judea. He's hoping they'll send him back there, meaning financial support. Send him back there. But he can't go there with them right now because they're in such disarray emotionally and spiritually. Look at verse 23. We come back to Corinth again. It's mentioned in the text. You might circle it. I'm strongly implying that you should circle these biblical places. And I want to recommend to you the English Standard Version Study Bible maps and notes to help you understand these biblical places associated with the Apostle Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians. Because there was a plan that he had hoped to do, but then he wasn't actually able to do it because of their continued sin and because of the distance between them. And frankly, at times, because of, of leadership insensitivity and then resensitivity. There is a, a, a relationship between the leaders and the members that's going on here. And it is something that Paul writes autobiographically and emotionally about in our text. And I think that if we, in fact, miss that, we won't really be able to apply this properly to our lives today. And that's the reason why I take this five-minute excursion and walk through biblical places is so that you can begin to have it sink into your brain where it is that these things are taking place at and what it is that these things mean. Uh, by the way, we're going to come back to this, as I already said, in two weeks, and I think it's very, very important that we do it again and do it again and do it again 
so that we can understand Paul's so-called canceled visit and what it meant in the life of that church and how we might also click with ways that we get it right and get it wrong sometimes because of, of, uh, of our sin and because of our averseness to leadership and because of leaders' sin and their averseness to chemistry with the flock. Now, back to the matter at hand. I want you to look specifically with me at verses 12 to 14 because God is our guarantee we can have the same boast. Look at verse 12. For our boast is this. Do you see that? Look at verse 14. You will boast of us as we will boast of you. Do you see that? That forms what we call an inclusio in that section, boast and boast, which makes it a strong nomination for a main subpoint in this sermon, boast. Boast. We boast, you will boast. So it's like bragging, like emotions have been warped by the fall of humanity since we've been east of Eden. And the boast of a consistent life and doctrine is what Paul is saying that he wants to boast of the leaders in the church then. And leaders must have consistent life and doctrine. And he, so he says that, that, that their conscience is clear because of that, that they need to come to a common understanding and that they together, as with one another in the flock, you all will have the same understanding on the day of the Lord. So let, let's take that on its part. God is, guarantee, God is our guarantee, and so we have this same boast the testimony of our conscience. God sees everything that we do. Everything. And these leaders feel confident that they can appeal to God in matters of conscience. It is not that they are confident in their perfection. They have not experienced sinful perfection. It's that what these leaders can say is, is they can confidently say before the God that they know sees all of their actions and attitudes, all of their affirmations, everything. God sees it. He knows their hearts, and he can say before them, we are acting in a manner consistent with our conscience. Now, conscience can be misinformed, to be, to be sure. We preached on that back in 1 Corinthians 8. But insofar as our conscience is rooted in the text of Scripture and sound principles of interpretation has been nurtured across time with a teaching from the Word of God, we should have some reliability and trustworthiness with the internal witness of conscience for basic morality or character or integrity. Integrity is the, is the currency of leadership, isn't it? And we have to be able to trust the people that are ostensibly leading us somewhere leading us somewhere, maybe that we're not even really sure how we're going to get there, maybe hard places to go. The aim here, of course, is sanctification, that we would be sanctified according to the grace of God. God guarantees we're going to have, God is our guarantee, and so we're going to have this same boast on the day of the Lord. How do we get there? Well, we must have matters of conscience in place with our leaders and with our members. We must be moving along in sanctification as God is giving us patient grace with one another to get there. It's not a straight line trajectory, but it's that God is making his people. And this is a spiritual enterprise. It's about God, first and foremost. God sees everything you do. I want you to understand that so that you can offer a testimony of your conscience. Dig down deep if there's an inconsistency between what your testimony should be if you're going to lead someone else to Christ and what your testimony must be if you're going to be consistent with actually what's going on with your life and doctrine. 
This is a place for you to pause this morning to repent before Jesus, to seek godly counsel after church, to, to make, put a pin in it, to make it a point to have a consistent testimony of your conscience, to behave in this world with simplicity and sincerity. May it be said of us, according to the grace of God, that we behave with straightforward simplicity and sincerity. I was known in some of the Greek philosophers of the time that had penetrated the church with some of their worldly thinkings that they would talk on and on and on and on, and they would sound so good in their talking, but they would never arrive at the knowledge of the truth. And 2 Timothy chapter 2 talks about some of these folks in Ephesus, how these, these teachers would talk and talk and talk and talk and wax eloquently, but they would never arrive at propositional truth, at absolute truth, at thus saith the Lord, like what we say. And Paul was trying to indicate to the early church leaders, and I think to us, that you can tell a difference between those that are trying to hit that aim of sanctification with you. You can tell a difference between those that are doing that and those that are really not by whether or not they're able to speak to you propositionally. Now, I'm not saying that we should speak propositionally, truthfully about things that are gray that we don't know, but those things that we are sure of, we must proclaim with certainty and we must proclaim to God's people without reservation. And that is so important that leaders' teaching of the doctrine is matched by their profession, by their life's pattern. And they are behaving in a way that is sincere from the heart, but is also simple. It's pursuing holiness. It's understandable. And that's part of this text. Look at verses 13 and 14. We are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. I hope you'll fully understand. I hope you'll fully understand. Four times the Greek word that comes to us as know or understand. This word comes to us here in this passage three times. We want you to understand, to read and understand. I'm not an apostle. I don't write scripture. But I affirm the apostle's witness, and I read to you and teach you from scripture. And when I read to you and teach you scripture, it should be with the aim that you are, I'm, I'm wanting you to understand. I want to be clear. I want you to know. I want to have an eye for clarity. And I'm my biggest enemy when I don't hit this. When I re-listen to my sermon on audio on Monday and I make notes from my sermon, I'm like, I wasn't very clear there. It bothers me because I believe this is an aim for every gospel preacher, for every leader, is that you would understand the Scriptures. That we would come to a common understanding where, as Alistair Begg says, the main things would be the plain things and the plain things would be the main things. That's what I want for you. I believe this text says that that's what we should want for one another is understanding, an eye for clarity, to know the text, a common understanding. The Bible says here that on the day of the Lord, indicating when Jesus consummates his kingdom with his second coming, on the day of the Lord, you will boast of us as we will boast of you all. What a beautiful picture of the finished work of sanctification that is guaranteed by God. These things that we quibble about are important. These things that we don't have a common understanding on are important. They affect how far we can go in conversations. They affect how well we get along with one another. They affect how vigorous we are for the mission and the matters at hand of the gospel. But they won't ultimately thwart God getting His work of sanctification done in us. Aren't you glad for that? 
we're going to have a common understanding. The Apostle Paul says, I boast in this, we're being consistent and seeking to understand and for you to understand and for us to understand together. And I boast in this, verse 14, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. What a great day. Imagine the day in glory when we boast of one another and it's not sinful because we're boasting of the work that Christ has done in us by the power of the Spirit that has sealed us for the day of redemption. And by the, by the fact that we're boasting about one another, we're actually boasting in Jesus, which is no sin at all. The emotion of bragging, the impulse to brag, the emotion of feeling pride is not a sin in and of itself. This emotion, this boast, this kalkamai in Greek, is something that God is redeeming out of us for good. So don't brag on yourself. Brag on Jesus and brag on Jesus' work in other people. And you know what? What goes around comes around, and we are iron sharpening iron, and we are mutually edified. The first thing that I think we see in this text is because God is our guarantee, and we're not our own guarantee, we're going to have the same boast on the day of the Lord. Now, our second point. Because God is the guarantee, we're going to have the same grace. We're going to have the same grace. In fact, Because the kingdom has already been inaugurated, because we've already started it, we have this same grace right now. In some measure, we have this same boast for our first point right now. Look at this same grace in verses 15 to 22. This is a grace of giving, of straightforwardness. This is a grace of promises fulfilled, of assurance of eternal life. This is the grace of God that we express every Lord's Day, every Sunday in our corporate, corporate worship together. In fact, our services are structured as such that we will, with what we say in our order of worship, express this grace in our confidence that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it on the day of the Lord. This is grace. Grace is so important in God's guarantee for us that it is it is the very, first, the very first verse in this section, verse 15. It is the theme of the verse. It says here, Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a, a second experience of grace. Now, the English Standard Version Study Bible mentioned this, mentions this about a second experience of grace. It's Deuteron Karin, or two graces, second benefit, second grace. And this is what they say. It's very helpful, just three sentences. Some think this refers to a second opportunity to contribute to the collection for the believers in Jerusalem. And we're going to see more about this in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. On this interpretation, contributing to the needs of others is called grace because it is made possible by God's grace in the lives of those who give. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything you have. So your ability to give a portion of what God has given you back to the Lord is an act of worship. It is a grace gift. The Corinthians are set free to meet the needs of others because God has met their needs. Other interpreters see this as a reference to the added experience of various blessings from God that would come by another visit by Paul. So Paul, uh, he, he calls out gifts in people in a way that I would not. We recognize them, but, but Paul is, is prophetic in a way that I would not be directly. And so this, this could be what, what he means. I sort of favor the idea of second benefit or second grace contributing to the needs of the believers in Judea an act of giving, of selfishly and cheerfully giving. And, and I'm so encouraged uh, by this flock and your generosity in giving. I just, I, I, I am so impressed percentage-wise at how this church gives. And if you haven't joined in the joy of giving yet, a great application to this sermon is to pick a target and hit it with contributing to the needs of the saints, contributing to the ministry. This is a grace to give. It is a grace of giving. 
And he says he wanted to come to them so that they could effectually give and send him on his way, send him on his way to Judea, where the poor Christians were. He was going to send them there. And he couldn't do it because of matters at hand at the church in Corinth. He couldn't do it. I, I wonder if we could frame this giving as part of sanctification so that we can get to the point of sending people on their way for missions. I wonder if we would just pause and understand that when we can't get to that, sometimes, oftentimes, it's because of similar issues in the church as what they had in the church at Corinth. Paul wanted deeply for them to give and send him on his way, but there was no joy at that point. There was underlying sins. There was immorality. There was distrust of leadership. There were serious problems in the church. They had to be addressed. And so it says here in verses 15 and 16, because remember, God is the guarantee that we're going to have this grace. So, so don't get sidetracked in thinking that these that God has began a work in, that God won't be faithful to complete it. Just because there are dips, there are valleys, and, and as well as hills in this journey, this aim of sanctification. So don't, don't get so dejected that you think that there's no believers in Corinth, because there clearly are. But there is misunderstanding between the church leaders and the members, and there's, there's need to clear things up, and there's appeals to conscience in reminding people of the doctrine of God. This is clearly what's going on in 2 Corinthians 1. And so they can't get to missions and evangelism and the grace of giving because there's underlying issues in the church. He says he wanted them to have deutero grace, second grace. Think deutero, Deuteronomy, Greek title of Old Testament book from the Septuagint. He wanted to do that. He could not. He didn't get what he wanted because this church had a need. But because as a leader, he had acted in the best interest of the church and changed his mind, he was open to the charge of vacillating in opinions. And so some of the other leaders on the ground, since Paul was a missionary, some of the other leaders on the ground there, perhaps with nefarious motives, accused Paul, look, that guy, he can't even make a decision to stick with it. That guy's yeses aren't yeses, his noes aren't noes, and he's always changed his mind. He's not even going to come see you again. You don't need to follow Paul. You need to follow me. And the apostle Paul vigorously defends his apostleship. He met Jesus on the Damascus Road. Jesus identified with his church that Paul was persecuting. Paul was radically converted and became an apostle. And this was the work of the Lord, not to be duplicated today. It was the work of the Lord specifically in Paul to lead to the salvation of many through Jesus Christ alone. This is Paul's message. And so he feels that he has to defend his apostleship and his integrity as a matter of conscience because he feels that the gospel is at stake with these Corinthian believers. So this is what he says in verse 17. Was I vacillated when I wanted to do this? Vacillating? Was I changing my mind back and forth? And then he says, do I make plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no? Yes, yes, and no, no. That's the reason the pastoral prayer from the Beatitudes that Jacob read earlier. Or, I mean, Pastor Kurt read earlier. Do I say yes, yes, no, no at the same time? Verse 18. As surely as God is faithful. Boy, he appeals to a higher authority, doesn't he? He says, as surely as God is faithful, our word as leaders in the church hasn't been yes and no. And then he makes this, this Christ center. He says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silas and Timothy, Silvanus, another word for, for Silas, Silas and Timothy and I, and then Titus is mentioned later in this book as well. So there's a core of leaders here, planting churches and establishing leaders in churches, laying aside elders. Titus 1 talks about that. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, 
Silas and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in Jesus, it is always yes. God gets what he wants. Appeal to him. He is our higher authority. Verse 20, and this was our catechistic verse to start the sermon. For all promises of God, read it with me. For all promises of God find their yes in him. Where do the promises of God find their yes? In him. In him is Jesus, isn't it? And, and that is so very important. It says here, that is why it is through Jesus that we utter our amen to God for his glory, not for our glory, for God's glory. It's why we're framing these points the way that we are. It's because God is our guarantee that we have this same grace. It's because God is our guarantee that we can grow to greater giving and greater missions. It's because God is our guarantee that we can learn to believe the best in the leaders that God has gifted and set aside for our congregations. It's because God is the guarantee that we can have grace in these things. It's because God is the guarantee that we can know every promise of God will come to pass. Not that it might, but it will. That the plans of God will not be thwarted. And it is because of this guarantee from God that you can know that grace will see you through. These are his promises, and he is establishing us as a people. I told you from the start, these participles are so important. It says again in verse 20, all the promises find their yes in him. That's why we utter our amen to God for his glory. It is God who establishes us. Who establishes us? God does. It's God who has anointed us. Who anointed us? God did. It is God who put his seal on us, on you. It's God who gave you his spirit in your heart as a guarantee or as a down payment for that which will be made, made, made viewed in full on the day of the Lord. The kingdom has, in a very real sense, already come in your heart and life. And we get to see that establishment here when it's not frustrated by sins and the quirkiness of us. We get to see that in the here and now. Friends, I want you to cling to the promises of God. I want you to cling to them as a hungry dog would cling to a T-bone steak that fell and hit the floor. I want you to chomp your proverbial claws down on those promises, and I want you to hang on to them because in Christ you can be sure all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. It is him we proclaim, Colossians says, and this text says as well, we proclaim him. This is what we have proclaimed. We have proclaimed or preached the Son of God, Jesus Christ, verse 19 says. He has put this in our hearts. And God's people know the sound of God's voice, God's words of this text. God is the guarantee that we have this same grace. The word, the logos to you, hasn't been yes or no. It has been a consistent proclamation. This sounds a lot like corporate worship to me, too. He hopes for giving, but it hasn't happened yet. What do we say at the end of every prayer? We end it with, in Jesus' name, amen. And what does he talk about here? Our amen to God for his glory. This is why we utter our amen. What do we do every Sunday when we gather together? We say a whole lot of amens, don't we? I mean, yeah, there you go. It's a confirmation word. It comes to us. It means, so be it, Lord. It's how the Bible ends. It has Hebrew origins. It's important. We utter our amen to God for his glory. So it's important that we do this. I think it's important that we proclaim him every time we gather. Jesus is the message, and we proclaim him every time we gather. I think this, this text here about God's grace has strong implications for how we order our worship services 
And I think that you can see that reading with a keen eye. The grace of giving, of straightforwardness about the proclamation of Christ, of the promise fulfillment found in Christ, of the assurance of salvation in Christ because of the seal that is on us. God in me, God in you, therefore God in us. So God is a guarantee we have the same boast. God is a guarantee we have the same grace. And then finally, because God is a guarantee, we have the same joy. The same joy. John MacArthur framed his leadership in a recent podcast interview that he had by a man with Crossway named Matt Tully. He framed his leadership interview since 1969 in the same church, 50 years over in the same church, over 50 years. And he framed his, his understanding of his life's work from the start as the shepherding and the sanctification of the people that God had entrusted to him. And I'm going to tell you, that resonates with me now in a way that it didn't when I first started in ministry. I believe on the authority of the book of Hebrews and the whole Bible that I will give an account for you. Not for every you out there, but for you specifically, the members of this church. It's why I carry around this church directory. It's why our leaders meet and pray through a page out of the directory every Sunday morning. It's why we urge you at our members' meetings to pray through the directory. I believe I will stand and give an account before God for your souls. And Hebrews says, therefore, because of the weightiness of that, you should seek to make this job of leaders not a burden but a blessing. It's for your joy and for your good. Hebrews 13, 17, and 18 for the information. Now, I think there are times when we're operating under the guarantee of God that we forget about God's guarantee and we lose our joy in this project of sanctification. I know John MacArthur, he wrote a recent book on faithfulness and ministry, and I've ordered it. I'm going to read it soon. It's on 2 Corinthians 4 and 9 Principles for Faithfulness and Ministry. So I'm going to order, I've ordered that. I'm going to read that. And, but, but I feel like I've already got the, the main thrust of his argument. It's that the leaders of the church have to have as their aim the sanctification, the shepherding sanctification of the sheep. That he, they have to have that as their aim. And so that is a, that's an aim. It is a long-term aim. And when you're leading people somewhere, sometimes along the way, it can be viewed as vacillating if, if a leader, by definition, a leader should, should have an aim that they should see into something that perhaps not everybody sees into. It's part of leadership. God gifts the church with leaders, so you do well to be able to spot one. So in looking for sanctification, sometimes because of emotional concerns and life issues, it is smart for leaders to, to say, we're going to go there and then to stop, step to the side, wait, take a half step back, step back over, recapitulate, go again. That's not vacillating. That's leadership. That's what Paul's trying to articulate here is, by definition, leadership is seeing that you're going somewhere that not everybody necessarily sees. And it is a stewardship of trust. And the way that Paul believes in this situation and situations like it, that the best leadership can be exercised is for him to just change his mind and not go forward with his original plan at that time. Now, it would truly be weak-willedness if leaders never went forward with plans when they met friction. Amen? I mean, sometimes you got to go forward with plans and you meet friction. That's just part of leadership. And Paul does that plenty of times. There's plenty of examples in Scripture. But we also have this glorious example right here of him seemingly vacillating because his heart is so for these people. I mean, he's going to wind up with three visits. On the third one, he's going to write the book of Romans, right? Magnum opus. 
He's going to write four letters to them. He's willing to downshift and pause on something for a minute to get their hearts and their trust and their understanding to, to recast a vision, to send another voice like Titus. He's so excited for their sanctification. He is sure of them that on the day of the Lord, they're going to be together. He's sure of that. He's sure because of the guarantee from God and not for, from himself. I'm so thankful for God giving us some examples like MacArthur of people that just stay the course. On the day of the Lord, I don't have to fear the Lord's judgment because by his grace, he has pardoned me and he's pardoned you. And he who has began a good work in me and he's going to be faithful to complete it. But the weightiness, the gravitas of leading God's people, boy, woe is me if I ever lose that. This is, this is not for ego. This, is, this cannot be. If it is, oh my goodness, how pitiable we are. MacArthur writes about how that's the problem with the church today. Is too much of it is about ego and not about sanctification. May this be our aim as we go forward. And we would do well to read verse 23 and following to get our bearings so that we can finish the third point of this sermon because God is the guarantee we can have this same joy in the here and in the now as well as then, obviously then. I'll listen to verse 23 and following. It says this, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over you, but we work with you. So he sees this as a group project. It's like he calls them to pray together. He's calling them to work together for sanctification. It's not that we lord it over you, the leaders don't. If you like Sinner Goss coffee, I think it's the white, spawn, white swan coffee at Evansville. This is the inspiration for that word. It's the adjective Sinner Goss. It means we work with you. We work together. Spiritual authority is to work with you and not lord over you, First Peter 5 says. It's for your joy and for you to stand firm in the faith. Both. It's not like your joy is to not stand firm. It's both. It's, it's, remember, we've talked about this before. It's truth and it's love. It's grace and it's firmness. One of the ways that God really gives us joy is to give us a clear conscience, life and doctrine, at the same time that we have patient endurance with one another. So he wants to work with you. We are to work together for your joy, for you to stand firm in the faith. So this is why verses 1 to 4 then, why they're said, I think. And I think they make sense in the context of what we've talked about here to 4. It says, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you right now. He didn't come right then. Remember the maps? For he says, if I cause you pain, who's there to make me glad? In other words, your, your joy is important to me too, just practically speaking. I don't want you to be miserable. You shouldn't want me to be miserable. There is this, this ongoing reciprocal relationship between the members and her leaders that she has set aside to serve her. So a, a word about that in conclusion in a moment. But just to, to, to kind, of, kind of really drill down on this is a relationship that is reciprocal. And if it isn't, it is misery all the way around. It is of no advantage for it to be lacking joy, for it to be contentious. It says, For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad? Look at the verse. But the one whom I have pained. That's not helpful. Verse 3. And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. Should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy, see this theme of the word joy? My joy would be the joy of you all. 
that we would have this joy together based on God's guarantee. We're going to have the same joy. I want to see it inaugurated in the here and now. So verse 4, I wrote to you out of much affliction, anguish of heart, and with many tears. He, he's, he's at least internally crying, if not physically crying. This is not about physical pain. It's about emotional and spiritual pain, which is real, isn't it? It's real. Internal pain can't be as bad as external pain, physical pain. He says, finally, final stanza of this, not to cause you pain. I didn't write for that, even though I wrote to you about standing firm in the faith, and he did. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the love, the abundant love, the agape love, the love of God to let you know. Same word used four times in our first subpoint this morning up there. Understand, 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 understand. No, gnosko, same word. To let you know the agape love, the divine love that I have for you. And he knows that they need to know that more than they need a strong message of direct repentance from him in that moment. This is difficult. Because what it means is that we have to know, based on a a close eyeball-to-eyeball relationship with the church's members, the condition of the flocks, it says in Proverbs and says in the New Testament, to such a point that we know when the direct call for repentance is absolutely necessary right now, and we know when to hug somebody, walk through a situation, and then say, hey, by the way, I see this on the clear teaching of the Word of God. I don't know if you've seen this yet, but your life isn't matching up with this, and this is what it looks like to walk with Jesus. And all the promises find their yes in Jesus. Let's walk with Jesus. Leaders will not always get that right. And so that's why we have to have patience with one another. But I want you to know that that is their aim. That's the target. And if I didn't believe it so, I wouldn't nominate them. If I didn't believe it so, I would not nominate them. Truth. I believe that God is helping us together. And in accordance with our church's constitution, I'm nominating lay elders to join our staff elders in the leadership of this church. After you, the congregation approved the nomination at a scheduled members meeting, scheduled for September 15th. You will have an elder-led yet congregationally ruled church, also in accordance with our church's constitution. And these elders will then examine the membership role and nominate deacons for task-specific, time-sensitive terms. The deacons will term off every three years. Though there will be more than one deacon, the deacons will not meet as a deliberative body. That's what the elders will do. The purpose of deacons is to serve in a way as to free the elders to to mentor them, to shepherd the flock better with more attention to detail with members, and to focus on deep prayer and study of God's word for teaching purposes in the church. If this is curious to you as a prospective member, note your tear off to take membership matters with Pastor Kurt this fall. If you are already a member, your new elders, hopefully, the Lord sees fit to, for you to ratify my nomination, and that is yours to decide. But if you are already a member, your new elders plan to offer a Saturday seminar taking you through membership matters for those that are already members. The three men I hardly nominate to you for your consideration are brothers Ron McIntyre, Dan Cole, and Mark Lambright. Because the office of elder and deacon is reserved for qualified men only and not women, I want to offer a specific word to women this morning. Some of you are gifted and qualified to lead. Your role in the home and the church is indispensable. We want to take the time to train you in leadership also. 
I personally am submitting a church leadership training proposal. It's a 10-page document to our church board for their deliberation and consideration next Sunday, and then at a members meeting this fall, September 15th. We often discuss women in leadership, but we don't do enough to equip women for leadership. There are special needs folks. There are children. There are ministries of music and to other women and benevolence and hospitality and more that, that called, gifted, godly women for leadership need to be equipped for. Being equipped to be the wife of an elder or a deacon is not a small training in and of itself. So the church leadership training proposal I share will have a men's and a women's track overlapping in most places, but gender-specific in others. This is the least that we can do to help the church stay clear in a gender-distorted and gender-confused age. Amen? Now, on September 1st, in here, at 915, we're offering a church-wide Sunday school class taught by me to explain this church leadership training that I've been floating around here for the last five minutes. Then new Sunday school classes, elective curriculums will be offered beginning the next Sunday, September the 8th. And the importance of those classes and of the elder nominations that I've mentioned for our members meeting on September 15th will be discussed during the class on September 1st. So the main walk away for you to think about, non-members and members alike are encouraged to attend in this room at 915 on September the 1st. And you might ask, Pastor Matt, why offer that statement here? I believe it is because this is the text that lends itself most to a message like that to you. I felt led of the Lord to share that today because God is our guarantee that we're going to have the same boast, the same grace, and the same joy on the day of the Lord. And we are wanting a little more of the kingdom come experience now, a little more of your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we believe that this is a message. It is a call for leaders and members to function together the way with the patient endurance that the apostle Paul outlines, the way that he outlines it in 2 Corinthians chapters 1 in the beginning of chapter 2 and onward. So the application for this sermon is a partnership to hit that aim of sanctification between leaders and members, a partnership. The benefit is clear. It's God's greater glory in your life. There's going to be friction to navigate to be sure, but God guarantees the destination and the togetherness in the end. Why not taste it now? This text is about how God is working in us, the same boast, the same grace, the same joy that we will understand the same about God, experience deeper grace about God, deuterocharis, second grace, that we'll discover an ease of joy by God between us that we will see his work in us come to fruition. Non-believer, you lack the seal of the Lord. That this passage talks about there's been no down payment, no guarantee that you've become aware of in your heart. You're not part of God's house that he's paid for and that he's building. God is quickening you inside, and I want you to know that today is the day of your salvation. Repent and believe in the risen Lord Jesus. Lift high the name of Jesus. This message should prod you as an unbeliever to believe. You are in a dangerous situation. Yours is a dangerous situation. Christ is a promise-keeping Savior for His people that embraces His promises. Embrace Jesus this morning. Welcome Him into your life. Just say, Lord, I want You to be the Lord of my life. I want You as my Savior. By grace, I want this joy. I want this boast. I want you. Believers, a few words for you in conclusion today. 
live lives of consistent character. Make the testimony of your conscience clear before God and before man. Morally sincere keepers of the word. This is good for all of civilization, but it's good just for your neighborhood, the smallest unit for your family. Be people of consistent character. Witness to the governing authorities by your own moral character. Adam said that this republic is only fit for a moral people. Our strength is a spiritual depth that produces such morality. Show them Jesus by a consistent moral testimony that matches the profession that you make. Tell them about Jesus and defend God's honor in the public square. Corinth is a diverse church body. They must find their unity in Jesus Christ, not in lawlessness. There's a moral code of conduct that accompanies Christianity, and all morality finds its impetus in Jesus. All morality finds its impetus in Jesus. He is our yes. A word to leaders in family units. If you're a leader in a family, in my hearing, perhaps a mother, a father, a guardian, I want you to know that if you're a driver, that you need patience. And if you are a lackadaisical person, you probably need some driving in the leadership in your home. You know which that you are tending toward. If you're lackadaisical, you need a direction. You need to get after it. And if you're a driver, you probably need the patience that Paul exhibits in this passage more than what you know. You must have a vision for your family, an aim of sanctification, but don't grind your gears in getting there. Be patient, not willing that any in your flock should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Paul gives the leader an example of knowing the condition of his flock and leading it with tender care towards sanctification. I want that for you. And finally, for all believers, could the, could the yeses of Jesus warm you this morning? Could they assure you this morning? Could the guarantee by the Spirit motivate you this morning? Do you need to repent of an overly critical eye toward those that lead you? Do you need to believe that God's gifts for the church are leaders that help with the aims that he has set for you as a Christian? Sanctification. What this means for us as a body is beautiful. Our worship being led by people of character, seeking a chemistry together and a competency in the word-based Worship leading of the church is beautiful. The prayers ending in amens and the lifting high of the name of Jesus, proclaiming the Son, the teaching and the continuity of Scripture in Jesus, fulfilling all the Old Testament promises based on good principles of understanding Scripture. All that is in this passage today, and that is what God is making for us as a church together. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Heavenly Father, amen. Do it. Do it in us. Give the leaders tears for these people and give the people tears for their leaders. Stop us where we are not on the right track and propel us where we are on the right track. In Jesus' precious name, amen.